everyone. Welcome to Dig Deep. Well, today we are starting a brand new series called Hard to Believe. And since we were last together on the podcast, we celebrated Easter. And I will tell you right up front that this year's Easter celebration was uniquely marked by grief for me. Four weeks ago, we received extremely tragic news from some good friends of ours that their oldest son, only six years old, had passed away very suddenly. And so the last month has been a little bit of a blur. We have obviously spent a lot of time weeping with them and for them. We've desperately looked for something that we could do to help, but a lot of the time felt just really helpless. We've tried to pray with them and for them, but you guys, sometimes I just did not have the words to pray. And at their request, we worshiped with them. But again, I struggled to sing some of the lines of the worship songs that we sang together. And so in the midst of this month of grief, we celebrated Easter. We celebrated the event that is at the very core of our faith, that Jesus defeated death, rose from the grave. And we went to church and sang powerful songs about victory and resurrection and hope. And I'll be honest with you, my heart did not feel victorious. My heart was, and still is, struggling. And so honestly, I'm a little relieved to see that on the very first Easter morning, Jesus' disciples were struggling too. See, in our contemporary Christian culture, Easter is the main event, and rightly so. It is the most coordinated, organized, produced Sunday on the church calendar. I mean, we pull out all the stops for Easter. But the very first Easter felt very different. Now, if you grew up like I did, then in the church calendar year, there were two main events, Christmas and Easter. And it's just been in recent years, under the leadership of our lead pastor, that I have learned more about the traditional liturgical calendar of the church. And so under his leadership, I've learned a lot about Lent and how in the 40 days leading up to Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we can prepare our hearts to acknowledge Jesus's death and then to celebrate his resurrection. And I've only come to learn recently that historically, the church didn't celebrate Easter just on one day, but they celebrated it as a 40-day season. Some denominations refer to it as Eastertide, where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. We celebrate the 40 days that Jesus spent on earth in his resurrected body before he ascended to the Father. And so in this three-part series, I simply want to invite you into the process that I've been in the past several weeks as I've taken a closer look at three specific conversations that Jesus had with individuals after he rose from the grave and before he ascended to heaven. All three of these conversations take place in John chapter 20 and 21, where we see the real humanity of the disciples And I'm grateful for that because I can relate to them. I love the way Andy Stanley points out that on the very first Easter morning, we don't find the disciples wearing their Easter best, full of faith and understanding, all waiting outside the tomb with party hats and noisemakers counting down 10, 9, 8, cue the sun, 7, 6. No, we find the disciples hiding, grieving, giving up. See, just like me, and maybe just like you, the disciples were tangled up in grief and doubt 
and fear of the future, they were lost. And so to set up the scene, to set up the conversation that we're going to look at today in John chapter 20, Mary Magdalene went to visit the tomb early. From the other gospel accounts, we can assume that she was joined by a few other women and that they were bringing burial spices to anoint Jesus' body. When she gets there, she sees that the stone has been rolled away from the tomb, so she turns and sprints to go tell the disciples. She finds Peter and John and panting, tells them they've taken the Lord's body away. I don't know where they have put him. And so they all start running back to the tomb. John apparently was the most athletic of the group because he outruns everyone and gets there first, but he stops at the entrance and just looks in timidly, probably a little afraid of what he might find. Peter then arrives out of breath and doesn't hesitate, but goes right past John, true to his personality, and bursts right into the tomb and finds the linen cloths lying there. Following Peter's bold lead, John goes inside and sees for himself, and we read in verse 9 that they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Peter, John, Mary, some of Jesus' closest followers, were caught off guard by the resurrection. Their first moments with the empty tomb weren't marked by celebration, but by confusion and chaos. And do you feel the vibe of this scene? There's yelling and running and weeping, and then eventually people kind of scratching their heads and not knowing what to do next. And in the midst of the confusion, I guess not knowing what else to do, verse 10 says that John and Peter just go home. But Mary stays at the tomb And when her adrenaline wears off, she starts to cry, and then her crying gives way to sobbing. And that's where we pick up in verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, he asked her the same question that the angels did, woman, why are you weeping? And then Jesus asks a follow-up question, whom are you seeking? Says Mary, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And I want you to notice that Mary clearly doesn't understand that Jesus rose from the dead. She doesn't even seem to entertain it as a possibility. Just like when she ran to report the empty tomb to the disciples, she assumed, just like I would, that if the body is missing, it means someone moved it. And I do wonder if Jesus smiled to himself a little bit when she thinks he's the gardener and she says, please, sir, if you've moved him, please tell me where you put him. I like to imagine Jesus thinking, uh, Yeah, I moved in, Mary. I moved myself from horizontal to vertical. Mary, check it out. But I don't think Jesus talked like that. But I do suspect that when Jesus asked, woman, why are you weeping and whom are you seeking? That he asked her those questions knowing that he himself was the answer. See, though it will look different for every one of us, we will all face grief in this life. And Jesus is the only one who can redeem our grief. He is the only one who can offer real, abundant, and eternal life. But at this point in the story, Mary hasn't experienced that with Jesus because she doesn't even realize it's him. 
And we don't know whether Mary didn't recognize Jesus because her eyes were full of tears or because she hadn't truly looked up at him or whether Jesus had somehow made himself unrecognizable as he did with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. But either way, Jesus breaks through the confusion and makes himself known to her. And I absolutely love how he does it. He simply says her name. In verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. See, there's power in hearing your own name. I'm not really sure why, but a lot of people seem to struggle to remember that my name is Jess. My name is Jess. Maybe it's because I go by Jess more than Jessica. I don't know what it is, but so many people in my life, even people that I have known for months or even years, call me Jen. They call me Jen. I don't know why. I don't know if it's because Jess and Jen are obviously very similar or if it's because I am part of the Jessica, Jennifer, Lauren generation. I don't really know, but I don't hold it against people anymore because so many people call me the wrong name. And it's really not that big of a deal. But if my husband called me the wrong name, he would be sleeping on the couch for a week. Why? Because he's not just some acquaintance. He's my closest friend, my husband. He knows me better than anyone else. And listen, we do not have an impersonal God who says, uh, oh, hey, hey, you, yeah, what's your name again? Is it Jess or Jen? We have a personal, loving God who knows each of our names. And whether you know that already or not, let that sink in for a minute. God knows your name, and he knows every piece of your story that goes with that name. In John 10, Jesus says of himself, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And he says, the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And so when Jesus said Mary, in just that one word, he encapsulated the whole of their relationship. And what's funny is just like I'm part of the Jessica generation, Mary Magdalene was part of the Mary generation. I mean, you read the Gospels, there's Marys everywhere. Jesus' own mother's name was Mary. You have Mary and Martha, you have Mary Magdalene. Of all of Jesus' female followers, Mary seems to be the most common name. And it doesn't matter how common or uncommon your name is. Names are powerful. Your name is the label for your soul. And so with that one word spoken by Jesus, I imagine their whole history of their relationship flashed before Mary's eyes. We read in Luke 8 that Mary was one of Jesus' closest followers, following him along with the 12 disciples and several other women. And like every single person who chooses to follow Jesus, Mary's life had been radically changed by Jesus. In Mary's case, Jesus cast seven demons out of her. There were things in her life before she met Jesus that were marked by pain and death and evil. There were things, big things, that were broken and empty and lonely and headed nowhere. And the same is true for you and for me. But then Mary met Jesus and he changed everything. He forgave her sin. He set her free from the things that held her captive and he gave her life. He is the good shepherd. And he says in John 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But then he says of himself, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. He knows you. He sees you. He sees that devastating loss of that loved one, that relationship, that job, that dream that you had for your life. He sees your specific grief and he wants to offer you life. 
See, grief and loss and suffering will come in some form to every single one of us in this broken world. And when it does, it will pull you away from God and toward isolation and loneliness. There have been seasons of grief in my life where I have not wanted to open my Bible. I have not known what to pray. And I want to encourage you that if you're there, choose to do it anyway. Even when it's painful, even when you don't know the words to pray, go to him. He loves you. He grieves with you. Let him show himself to you. Let him say your name. That is how Jesus makes himself known to Mary. He calls her by name so that he can lead her forward out of her grief and toward life. And then when she has that moment of recognition in verse 16, she's ecstatic and she turns to him and says in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And that's the Hollywood end of the story. The music swells in as they embrace and Mary's hopes and wildest dreams are realized. Her teacher, her leader, her savior has come back. But that is not where the story ends. Instead, the tenderness of that moment seems to end and the dramatic music abruptly cuts off when Jesus gently pushes Mary away by saying in verse 17, do not cling to me. And these words have been ringing in my ears the past few weeks. Do not cling to me. Do not cling to me. And I've struggled to understand why did Jesus say that? What did he mean? I recently attended a women's ministry event, and during one of the sessions, they hosted a panel of authors and bloggers on the topic of suffering. And each one of these women had experienced very real suffering in this life, battling cancer, grieving the loss of loved ones, struggling with infertility and miscarriage and mental illness. And one of the questions the interviewer asked the panel was, what strategies have they developed, if any, to help them push through seasons of suffering? And one of the women on the panel answered the question with an image that stuck with me. She said, when going through a particularly tough season, she tries to throw anchors into the future. And she said it can be something small, just an upcoming vacation this summer or a wedding of a loved one or even hypothetical plans or dreams for sometime in the next year. And I resonated with that because I've done that and it works pretty well. In a season of pain or transition or grief, when the world feels dark and cold, it can be helpful to visualize the day that the sun will be out again. And on a very small and very petty scale, these past few weeks, I have been doing this because we have had a very long gray winter here on the East Coast and spring is very late in arriving. And even in the past two weeks in mid-April, we were still getting snow flurries and I am over it. And on those gray cold days that we've had recently, I am holding on to the hope that is offered by the stubborn daffodils and cherry blossoms that are forcing their way into the world despite the weather, signaling the promise that spring really is coming. And whether it's something small like that or something bigger, I do believe we all do this to some degree. We throw anchors into the future. They're anchors of hope. They're something to hold on to that helps us move through some of the more difficult days. And there are some forms of suffering in this world that can be addressed with this strategy. There really are. The only problem is that sometimes 
There just isn't anything in the foreseeable future that is even close to strong enough to pull us forward out of the depth of the grief that we are experiencing. My dear friend who just lost her son put it so poignantly during our time together two weeks ago when she said it feels as though all of the small anchors that used to hold her to this life have become unmoored. She said the only anchor that offers hope is the anchor into eternity because her heart is already there. And she and her husband are throwing an anchor, but it's an anchor with a much longer rope, and it's one that requires faith. And that anchor is the subject of a hymn written by a woman named Priscilla Jane Owens, titled, We Have an Anchor. She says, will your anchor hold in the storms of life, when the clouds unfold their wings of strife, when the strong tides lift and the cables strain, will your anchor drift or firm remain? Will your anchor hold in the floods of death, when the waters cold chill your latest breath. On the rising tide you can never fail, while your anchor holds within the veil. And do you hear the truth that Priscilla Jane Owens is preaching? We are all throwing anchors, but most anchors drift. Anything that we attach our hope to in this life will not last. None of it. Not one single thing. There is only one place to throw your anchor that will hold in the most terrible storms. And she paints a picture of that anchor in the final verse when she says, Will your eyes behold through the morning light the city of gold and the harbor bright? Will you anchor safe by the heavenly shore when life's storms are past forevermore? See, we all throw anchors into the future, but sadly, Many of us still opt for shorter anchor lines again and again. Why? Because it's easier. You know, it's easier. It takes less effort and it's a quicker fix. I mean, some of us even opt for dangerously short anchor lines. We look to something like a new purchase or a spontaneous vacation that we'll plan for this weekend or even the promise of a delicious meal or a strong drink to get us through the day. And I promise you, you will grow weary very quickly from throwing those small anchor lines again and again and again because they all drift. They might help you get through a lame day or maybe even a lame week or month, but they will never be enough to pull you through the real storms of this life. And so for me, even as this grief has pointed me toward eternity, I know that I am still placing some measure of hope in the things of this world. The things in the more immediate future that I'm hoping for are often the things that keep me going because it's easier to focus on them. The warmer weather that is finally coming around, the hopes and plans and dreams I have for our family for this summer and this next year and the next five years, they somehow feel easier to hold on to, but none of those things can offer secure, lasting hope. And we put ourselves in a dangerous position when we stake our hope on the things of this world. And so I want to encourage you to ask yourself the same question that I've been asking myself the past few weeks. What are you clinging to? What are you clinging to? There is only one anchor that truly holds in all storms, only one anchor that offers real hope in this broken world. And as Owens writes, that is the anchor that leads us safe to the heavenly shores where life's storms are past forevermore. And I believe that is the truth that Jesus is communicating to Mary outside the empty tomb. 
In her grief, she would have given anything to have Jesus back. And now here he was standing in front of her. And she does what any one of us would do. She runs and throws her arms around him and will not let go. But it's in love that Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. And if I was Mary, I am sure that I would think, you have got to be kidding me. Don't cling to you. You're here. Something that I dared not even hope for is now a reality. You are here. You are back. I will never let you go. But Jesus says to her, do not cling to me. But I'm grateful that he goes on to explain why. He says, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. He says, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. And this is an amazing statement by Jesus. When he says, don't cling to me, he's saying, don't anchor your hope to my physical body, Mary. I have something even better for you. He's reminding her of two important promises. The first promise Jesus makes is I am ascending. He's reminding Mary and he's reminding us that his ultimate destination and ours is heaven. It is not this life. And then Jesus points her to the second promise that by his death and resurrection, Jesus has restored us to right relationship with God the Father. He says, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father. He's reminding her of the promise of John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus is reminding her, Mary, I have done this work to make you right with the Father. This is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus, in his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, made a way for us to become children of God, children who will be with him for eternity. And that is the only anchor that holds within the storm. And so listen, if you are not in a season of grief right now, I am, first of all, sorry if I am throwing you off. You are enjoying the sunshine. I want to encourage you, celebrate, enjoy the good things going on in your life. But I do want to encourage you to spend some time asking yourself the question, what am I clinging to? Where is my hope truly anchored? And if you're listening and you are in a season of grief right now, I know it sounds simple, but I know it's also very, very difficult. Take your grief to Jesus. Open his word even when you don't want to. Ask him to speak to you personally, to say your name somehow, to remind you of the things that he has done in your life. And ask him to show you mercy and help you throw your anchor into the eternal future. And I want to encourage you, don't suppress your grief. Don't deny it. Take it to him. Sometimes I think in... Christian culture, we, we get confused about grief. We feel like if we have hope in Jesus, then it's wrong to grieve somehow. No, I don't believe that's true at all. Mary was given a truly special gift. She was among the very first to see the resurrected Jesus. And I believe that's because she went out in her grief. She didn't shy away from the tomb. She didn't hide. She didn't try to hold in her tears. She didn't just try to move on with life. She expressed her grief openly. And that's where Jesus met her and offered her hope. And that hope was her anthem for the rest of her life. In verse 18, we read that she went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them all the things that he had said to her. All of Christianity hinges on the historical event of the resurrection of Jesus. And Mary spent the rest of her life telling anyone who would listen, I have seen the Lord. 
Her grief was turned to joy. Her despair was turned to hope. She was given an anchor in eternity that she could hold on to. And that's the anchor that the author of Hebrews writes about in Hebrews 6.19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. And that is the same anchor that my friends are holding on to. Throughout this past month, in the midst of their grief, this unbelievable, deep, dark grief, I have been amazed by them. They have led me. They have led all of their friends and family. They have shown us what it looks like to grieve fully, but to grieve with hope in Christ. And Jesus offered that same hope to Mary, and he offers it to you and to me. So I am so grateful that you are joining me for this series. Thank you for being here today. Next time, we are just going to get real and ask, what do we do with our doubts? What do we do with our doubts? So I hope you'll come back and join us for that. And until then, remember to dig deep.